This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are people who want to stay in Denver but can't because housing's getting so expensive. Some of those folks being pushed out are longtime residents. And it was like pouring gasoline on their anger and frustration when a coffee shop in historically black Five Points put up a sign bragging that it was happily gentrifying the neighborhood. And they said it was a joke, but to these community members, this is not a joke. Protests broke out. Today we visit a different coffee shop not too far away in another Denver neighborhood where low-income people feel the squeeze. Globeville Illyria Swansea. May I have a a vanilla latte? Prodigy Coffee House took over an old grease monkey. Its mission to help young people in Northeast Denver get work experience, especially ones who've struggled in school or other work environments. They spend a year as paid apprentices, learning not just to make coffee, but to connect with customers and co-workers. Apprentice Angel Martinez is 19. She says she never thought she'd be a barista, making lattes that cost three or four bucks. To me, when I thought of a coffee shop, I kind of thought of it being like this high-class atmosphere place, you know, where people come in and drink their little fancy drinks. The word prodigy, you know, the definition, it's a person, a young one, endowed with exceptional abilities. Prodigy co-founder Stephanie Francis. And we believe that there are those people in this community, especially those that are disengaged, that are prodigious. Francis sees coffee as a way to transform a neighborhood if these young people can apply the skills they learn in their own backyards. Imagine if they're the ones working for these developers or with these developers. They're the ones taking a, a lead role in um, you know, working with RTD, or they're the ones that are helping us make those decisions about how this community can benefit them as longtime residents and also new people who are coming here. So that it's not that gentrification is something that is simply happening to them. That's right. Another apprentice, 21-year-old Frankie Rodarte, says she's grateful someone saw potential in her. We didn't have to have experience or a resume. You know, they kind of just accepted us for who we were. That's a big deal. And that, that is. It really was for me, you know, especially because I was in the process of moving. You know, I just turned 19. I was really trying to take on a lot of responsibility. So for them to actually let me come in and show some competence, and actually even just make money to learn something really made me happy. Rodarte was one of the first apprentices when the shop opened just over a year ago. Like her co-worker Angel Martinez, she says fancy coffee represented a new world for her. But she lived in the area, and the bright murals on Prodigy's exterior caught her eye. I could honestly say that's what drug me in first, like all the f***ing... Sorry, I don't mean to cuss. I like to cuss. I'm a cusser. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> And so you saw the bright building. I seen the bright building, and it drew me in. There was a bunch of volunteers outside. They were painting chairs. I came by, and they said that they were um, starting a new apprenticeship for the youth, you know, and it was nonprofit, and it was, you know, I was the right age, and it was a good fit for me. Angel, what brought you here? I was actually in a diversion program, which is for first-time offenders, And I came to the training, which was in mid-February of the beginning of this year. It was definitely a welcoming environment, so I definitely found, like, I kind of found my place here. Can I ask about the diversion aspect of your life? What what was in your background that led you to that? 
Um, I don't necessarily like to talk about the incident that happened. I just wasn't on a very good path at the time. Have you had hiccups along the way? Definitely. I had a hard time with some of my coworkers. We weren't really communicating too well, and we weren't really getting along. And I definitely learned that not everything is going to go your way in life, but you always have to kind of figure a way around it to make it better and make it better for the people around you. When you ran into that kind of conflict before Prodigy, yeah, how do you think you would have acted? Um, I was kind of a critical person before. I wasn't as nice as I am today. I think I didn't really have the communication skills. Frankie, you said that you're in the neighborhood here. Uh, Yeah, I'm actually in Northeast Denver. I grew up here. Boy, I imagine you've seen some changes, huh? Yeah, not only having, you know, my neighbors move away to new neighbors to, you know, new businesses and old businesses getting shut down. And it really has been a drastic change. Do you have concerns about your own ability to stay in this neighborhood? Absolutely. Every day. You never know. You might wake up one day and the rent might be raised or... You just don't belong anymore, you know, and it's hard to be able to strive and survive when you feel incompetent. Tell me about that. What do you mean? Not everybody's handed opportunity. And, you know, even though we live in the community, we're not very aware of all the resources because, you know, not everybody just lets us know. Do you resent some of the people who come in here? It's more sad than mad. I think that Everybody's sadness turns into anger eventually. Sadness about how the neighborhood has changed, how 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 you don't feel necessarily a part of it? How it's not authentic, as we think it should be. You know, it's not our culture. It's not our history. I feel like people are building on top of it. They're trying to grow, of course. You know, I'm not a person to judge. You know, I don't know how hard people work to start their businesses or how hard they work to get to Denver, you know, to be an entrepreneur. But at the same time, I feel like because of all the things that you went through and you're on top, you shouldn't shame me or knock me down. You're Latina? Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think you're going to do with the experience and, frankly, the money you're earning here? There is no telling. Do you have a dream? I have a dream to build my own empire. I don't want to try to be an overachiever. I don't want to try to be Wait, 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 wait. You want to build an empire. But I don't want to be an underachiever at the same time. You know, I just want to work at my own pace. I do. And just make sure that I'm a better person than I was yesterday. Frankie, what did you make of the fact that the business was run by white people? Um, my mom is white. She is. Honestly, it didn't really, I didn't think nothing of it. Hmm. You know, I just seen an opportunity in front of me and I went for it. Did you guys hear about the news with that coffee shop across town that had the sign happily gentrifying the neighborhood? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I did, and I felt really offended. I don't think that's okay at all, and I don't know what made them think that that was okay. What in their right mind? And you can be so surprised by how many people that aren't really educated in this neighborhood, but they still know what gentrification is. Angel, what did you think when you saw that sign? Um, I was pretty surprised, to be honest, because I've been into eating coffee shop, and I really liked it. But when I saw that and when I heard about it, I really thought that you have to be really close-minded just to be able to put that out there for advertisement and just think that it's going to be okay for everybody. 
Angel Martinez and Frankie Rodarte are apprentices at Prodigy Coffee House, a nonprofit in Denver's Globeville, Elyria, Swansea neighborhood. Coffee is such a charged symbol right now in Denver, a sign of gentrification, of affluence. I sat down with co-founder and executive director Stephanie Francis. She said she was met with a lot of skepticism initially. We went to community members and said, hey, we're excited about this. What do you think about the model? We want to we wanna get your input. And I'm just going to say, very, you're a white lady. Yeah, yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, and legitimately so. They said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who the hell are you? And coffee is this first, you know, one of the first indicators of gentrification. And that's a real, real, real concern and, and reality for people who've been living in this neighborhood for a long time. And What did you say? <laughs> and how did they react? <laughs> so we said, let's work together, you know, creating a model and making sure that this empowers people in this neighborhood to build power, to build wealth, to build skills. These are year-long apprenticeships, right? Yeah. So, um, Is they're, it minimum wage? Or? No, above minimum wage. So they're tipped employees, but if you uh, look at their tipped wages, they're anywhere from 13 to $15 an hour. What's the success rate? So we're a year and a half in. Um, so we're just seeing results from, you know, our first cohort. And we've had, an, it, from those that have been hired, we've had an 80% retention rate. And these are from young people who have a, a habit and experience and desire to run and quit. One thing we hear a lot about with gentrification is displacement. People who've lived in a neighborhood in North Denver like this for years or maybe decades are being squeezed out because it's just too expensive. Is that happening to your apprentices and their families? Yeah, so we've had an apprentice who had to go get temporary housing different places each night and then found housing, but it was two and a half hour bus ride to get here. And so that significantly affected. It's one other additional barrier to finding success here at work. How are you keeping the doors open? Do you make money? Ah, great question. So our model is a social enterprise. So we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we exist for this social mission. Are you staying afloat? We have revenues from our coffee house sales that are covering about 70% of total operating costs. Our goal is within five years, we'll be totally self-sustaining here in this entity. Where is that other 30% coming from? That's coming from individual donations, grants. I think about other mission-driven food service. So there was Pizza Fusion on Colfax in Denver. It was a training ground for the formerly homeless, but it closed. And uh, Purple Door Coffee is also in Northeast Denver. They employ young people who've experienced homelessness and One of the founders told the Denver Post last year that it's been a challenging business model. What is the biggest challenge you face? Every day, every decision that we make is really this question of mission or business. There's a tension there, right? Hmm. I truly believe they're interdependent. Um, What's an example of a choice you have to make where you've got to weigh that? (laughs) Right. Something like an apprentice not being able to make their shift because they're experiencing homelessness. And yet you, they're, you on the schedule they're on the schedule. They're on Yeah, we've got to run up. a coffee shop here. And so, you know, we've got to address that in a way that knows that, like, I see you and I know what's going on in your life, and we're here to support you no matter what it takes. And we got to run a coffee shop. So we got to make a plan to get you here. And if you can't get here, we've got to address that before we can have you continue on the schedule. Are you a gentrifier? 
<laughs> that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, my wife and I bought our home two years ago, um, about 10 blocks from here. And we're not longtime residents in this neighborhood. So by that definition, yes. Yeah. What does that tell you? Or what would you ask other people in your shoes, in other people who self-identify, I guess, as gentrifiers to think about? Gentrification is enormous and complex. And it is a, a, a deeply dividing experience of our city right now. This is something that cannot be done by just one sector of our community. It cannot you, you be done You don't have illusions alone. that this coffee shop is going, is going, going to, to solve gentrification. No, oh goodness, no, <laughs> not at all. But what I would say is that when you think of bringing businesses and having businesses in these neighborhoods that are traditionally low income and uh, have been sort of disenfranchised, or not sort of, businesses like this, social enterprises, need to be an intentional part of our development. Do you hope that there are more brown and black faces leading that? Absolutely. Come back and talk to me in three or four years, Ryan, and if I'm still around here and leading this, let's have a whole different discussion because if this place exists so that Steph can feel good about running a nonprofit and high-five all her friends, and you know, that's not accomplishing true community wealth building. The goal that we have here is that these young people will be in and and are moving up into positions of power, decision-making, ownership, and that is the goal. That is Stephanie Francis, co-founder of Prodigy Coffeehouse in Northeast Denver. You can see photos from our visit at CPR.org. The president's signature is all that separates Coloradans and all other Americans from a new tax system. $3.2 trillion, just think of it, in tax cuts for American families, including doubling the standard deduction and doubling the child tax credit. The typical family of four earning $75,000 will see an income tax cut of more than $2,000. They're going to have $2,000, and that's in my opinion, going to be less than the average. You're going to have a lot more than that. About that new standard deduction, our next guest says it's causing angst among some charities and other nonprofits in the state. Lydia McCoy is vice president of the Colorado Nonprofit Association. Lydia, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So once the GOP tax plan becomes law, the standard deduction indeed will nearly double from about $6,500 for individuals to about 12000 and to 24000 for married couples filing jointly. The effect is that far fewer people will itemize. And that concerns you when it comes to charitable giving. Help us understand why. Right. Well, Ryan, we have a long history in this country of charitable giving. And starting in 1917, when the charitable deduction was included in the tax code, that was the foundation of a huge amount of growth that we've seen in the nonprofit sector. So we're entering really unknown territory about what it means to fundraise in the nonprofit sector without the charitable deduction being accessible to about 95 percent of taxpayers. Because the idea is if fewer people are itemizing, fewer people then have access to that specific charitable deduction. 
Right, exactly. So we know that last year, Coloradans with annual income of $200,000 or less gave $1.7 billion in charitable gifts. And most likely, that entire group will no longer have a tax incentive to give. Okay, about a third of Americans itemize now. Mm -hmm. And itemizers are far more likely to give to charity, according to the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. They are often wealthier, those who itemize. And uh, as we've said, far fewer people are likely to itemize under the new plan. Are there projections about what percentage will itemize and thus have access to the charitable deduction? Yeah, nationally, we're looking at a decrease of 33% currently to 5% of all taxpayers that would need to itemize and then have access to the charitable deduction. Okay, and so the new landscape is that with far fewer people taking the charitable deduction, uh, nonprofits are saying, what's that going to mean for giving? Right. And is it necessarily going to spell... Uh, a dark path? Might it be a bright one? Well, we know about 72% of all charitable gifts are made by individuals. So this is a huge chunk of what supports the nonprofit sector. And we also know from some studies, including a 2014 giving study by the Colorado Nonprofit Association, that 50% of respondents said tax planning was part of their decision making when choosing to make a charitable gift. That increased to 75% when you're looking at people who have incomes of over $100,000. So what you're saying is that for those giving to charities uh, and perhaps for those giving a lot to charities, mm -hmm. the tax incentives, the tax benefits are certainly a part of the calculation. Yes, exactly. So the National Council of Nonprofits shared a stat that for 10% uh, of all giving is made in the last four days of the year. It's not a coincidence that you're getting a bunch of appeals in your mailbox and in your inbox right now for end-of-year giving. Um, it makes sense that there's a, uh, it coincides with tax planning for the end of the year that nonprofits are saying this is a great time to ask people to consider us when they're looking at charitable giving. Okay. And so that rush, that mad dash at yeah. the end of the year is absolutely telling you people are doing this with with taxes in mind and perhaps the charitable deduction in mind. Right. But if, as the president says, Americans will keep more of their own money, especially wealthy Americans mm -hmm. who get healthy tax cuts, who's to say they won't spend some of that on charity? Sure. That's what we're hoping and that's what we're advocating for. So people give for a, a lot of different reasons that are combined. So we know that people's number one reason to give is because it's a it's a cause that they're passionate about. Yeah. They also have been asked by someone that they trust to give and support a cause. So somehow they have a connecting point, usually through a person, whether that's a professional or a friend or family member. So those are the main reasons people give. And I don't think what we're going to see is people not giving, because that's really the, the motivating force is a very personal one. However, I, I do fear that we'll see a decrease in giving because people won't be doing the math necessarily around taxes and say, oh, I need to give this much to get my full deduction. Um, instead, they'll give enough that makes them feel good, but it may not be as much as they had in the past. And so even at 72% of the support of the whole sector being individual giving, even if that's a 20 or 30% decrease, that's a pretty significant hit to, to giving. Estimates vary, but economists predict charitable giving could drop by somewhere around $13 billion yep. when the new standard deductions become law. Um, and there are estimates that say it could be more than that. Mm -hmm. What types of organizations do you think would be most affected if indeed there's there's less giving? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly organizations like Colorado Public Radio who depend on individual giving. Uh, um, I just want to say very clearly that that 
we, we did not plant that. Right. No, no. Conversation. No, when I it's think It's not of, an example I'm asking for. Right. I'd actually like some others. Besides, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, organizations like um, homeless shelters and people who are really using that personal appeal in order to get um, people motivated around individual giving. Organizations that are depending on federal grant money are probably going to see cuts. So they're looking at kind of a double whammy of decrease in government funding and a decrease of individual giving. So any group, which is most nonprofits that depend on an individual donor base for giving, are going to see a little bit of a struggle or a recalibration of how we go about raising funds. I want to say that we are not a part of your organization, the Colorado Nonprofit Association. Very important to us to make that clear. Uh, You talked about um, Americans giving with with tax incentives in mind and that year-end giving is a a sign of that. Uh, Is it possible that people are giving at the end of the year because it's the holidays? Uh, and might that play into this equation? Sure. And I think that's part of the whole, the personal um, push that people feel to give and to be generous and to create community around the holidays. Um, and I don't think the tax piece is, is in isolation, but those two coordinate in time. Okay. But this is uncharted territory, you're saying. There are questions. Forbes reports that the new tax plan could spur more IRA gifts to charity mm-hmm. through the charitable rollover. Just briefly, can you explain what that is? Sure. So people who are 70 and a half or over who have an IRA um, where they don't need to depend on the uh, the distribution from the IRA for their living expenses can give that distribution instead to a nonprofit tax-free. So that's a great option for that subset of donors that are 70 and a half and older who have that that wiggle room in their retirement. And it's possible that that avenue might become more popular under this new tax scheme. It could be, yeah, for that group. Absolutely. Lydia, thanks for explaining this to us. And we'll probably check in to see how things are going. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Lydia McCoy is vice president of the Colorado Nonprofit Association. We talked about how the new tax plan may affect charitable giving in Colorado. Jurors have a power they rarely use to essentially ignore the law when they don't agree with it. It's controversial, and that was certainly true when a Colorado woman brought the idea into a jury room back in the 90s. Laura Creho's story was told in an episode of Radiolab this year. She and producer Tracy Hunt recounted the case that made Creho a mini-celebrity. Hunt talks first, then Creho. The case was for this 19-year-old girl. And she was charged with possession of methamphetamine. What happened was is that she was up in uh, Central City, which is a gambling town. And that day, she was driving in her van with her boyfriend, and eventually the two of them drove to this casino. Her boyfriend jumped out of the van. He went to the casino. And then she kept driving, and then the police pulled her over. And The police said that she got out and put her purse on the hood of the car and then made a lunging movement towards it. Which they said gave them probable cause. To search her purse. Because now they're thinking, oh, does she have a weapon in her purse? Like, what is she trying to hide? And so the police open up her purse and they start kind of rifling through it. At which they found this one ounce of methamphetamine. Tracy Hunt of WNYC interviewed Creho and co-produced the segment for Radiolab. She picks up the story now with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Tracy, welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, Nathan. So... Laura Creho had some doubts about whether these drugs really belonged to the young woman who was on trial, right? And she wanted to convince the other jurors. What happened when the jurors got together to deliberate? Yeah, so um, so Laura was, was saying that um, she told the jurors, look, 
I don't I don't think that she's guilty. I think that there's enough reasonable doubt in this case. But she was telling the jurors, even if you do think that she's guilty, you don't have to convict her. You can use something called jury nullification. You could just you could just acquit her. And um, and this was kind of a this is a still a controversial idea um, that, you know, judge it, that jurors can just sort of ignore the law. And instead of just, um, you know, deciding a case on the facts of the case, they can just decide on a case using their own moral reasoning. And um, and and so Laura was trying to convince them, saying, look, this is a drug case. She's going to go to jail for all these years. It's not fair. And you don't have to convict her even if she's guilty. And she wasn't really kind of a full-on champion to start. She she kind of half-remembered this pamphlet that she was given, right? And she did this all this <laughs> yeah. research on her own. Yeah, she said that. Yeah, she told us that she found this pamphlet kind of like, you know, when she was out at some sort of outdoor fair somewhere in, in Gilpin County. And there was like a libertarian tent set up and they had these pamphlets on it. And so she And so she says she kind of just sort of like backed into this when, you know, when she was um, discussing it. And that she even said uh, when we talked to her that she didn't really understand what she was talking about, but she was trying to convey this idea to them that, look, they didn't actually have to put her in this, this, put this young woman in jail. Someone in your story describes perhaps the most famous or important instances of jury nullification. For for example, when slaves escaped from the South and Northern jurors Mm -hmm. knew someone harbored a slave, but they didn't convict because they didn't agree with it. That really helped me understand this, this jury nullification. Yeah, yeah, that is um, kind of like a, a, a really good um, kind of example of it. I mean, there's, um, but jury nullification kind of cuts both ways. And there's also, um, you know, kind of examples where juries uh, have nullified because they didn't think the victim was necessarily um, very um, sympathetic. And the most famous case of, uh, you know, example of that is Emmett Till, who was um, killed in 1955 for allegedly trying to talk to a white woman in, in Mississippi the jury, um, in that case, an all-white jury, convicted the men who killed him, and um, and yeah, and that's also that's also jury nullification. And so, um, but a lot of advocates would say that even though that jury nullification has this sort of like very um, feel-good ideas to it, like you can you know use it in this very moral, very upright, very you know you know upstanding way, it can also be used for. Um, very dangerous things. But even if it, even if those two things do happen, that it's um, an important part of democracy. This is a, a way for people to talk to their representatives and to their lawmakers and to their justice system about what they value. And she, and she was a part of that. We're, we're looking back at this part of Laura Creho's life in our series about notable Coloradans who passed away this year. In the history of jury nullification, mm-hmm. Creho's story stands out not just because she tried to convince other jurors to nullify in this way, but because the judge also tried to punish her. Uh, yes. Is jury nullification illegal? It's not illegal. Um, it's it's basically so jury nullification kind of um, is and sits up on a couple of different things. Um, when somebody is acquitted, there's a thing called double jeopardy. Prosecutors don't get another bite at the apple. Jury deliberations are secret, and jurors can't be. Um, can't be uh, uh, punished for their verdicts. And so in Laura's case, it was eventually overturned on appeal because the only evidence that they had against her were those jury jury deliberations. And because um, jury deliberations are supposed to be secret, um, her case was overturned. It was tossed out. What did they actually charge her with? Yeah. Oh, they charged her with contempt of court. Um, Prosecutors basically said that... um, 
that she had failed to disclose that she was previously, um, you know, that she had previously advocated for, um, you know, um, getting rid of drug laws and that she had previously been arrested for drug possession. And they also said that she violated the court, the judge's um, orders when she looked up um, the sentencing guidelines for that drug possession case that she was a juror on. What did she think? Did she think that she actually helped nullify this jury? Well, no, it, it wasn't a nullified jury because it was a mistrial. A nullified right. jury is when everybody, you know, quits it. So, yeah, so she isn't so, um, so she, like I said, she doesn't think that she was actually nullifying in this case, that she was just actually just trying to convince other people that they should nullify. Um, so, yeah, so she, no, she didn't nullify the, this jury. And she clearly didn't think that that was, that was her goal there in, in that sense. What, 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 was her, what was her character like? Um, well, so I actually never met her in person. We've only, we only talked on the phone a few times and we did an interview like we did, like we're talking right now in two different studios. Um, but she was, I, you know, I really, really just liked her. I thought, thought, thought she was incredibly honest and kind and super funny and a great storyteller, which is what we are always looking for when we're, um, you know, doing radio journalism. (laughs) Right. And and what do you think it says about her taking the stand, you know, where she was in that jury room saying, this is what's going on? I think that it, it, what it says about her is that she was somebody who really wanted to live her principles, even up to the point that she could have been, she could have been sentenced to jail. Um, in this case, like I said, her case was overturned, but she was originally convicted and she wasn't given jail time, even though six months was something that was, you know, was definitely on the table. Um, and she was fined, I think it was about $1,200. But she was somebody who was like willing to um, take a stand, even though like, you know, her liberty was at jeopardy. It's probably not a coincidence that the case she took a stand in was a drug case because Creho's bigger cause was actually marijuana and hemp legalization. Uh, she was yeah. <laughs> one of the earlier activists working to get hemp legalized at the federal level back in the 90s. And uh, a local uh, magazine, Westward, called her a true believer. Right. Yeah, I think when um, when we were talking to her, she I, I know that she was still kind of involved in um, in helping people set up like, you know, hemp businesses and things like that. Um, yeah, she was she was still very much involved in, in marijuana legalization and hemp legalization. So, um, yeah, that, that's also part of her legacy. Uh, She's uh, a cool lady. <laughs> a colleague back to nullification. A colleague tells me that when he went to serve on jury duty in Denver recently, uh, there was a person outside handling uh, handing out pamphlets oh, sure about jury nullification. Yeah. Is Denver a hotbed for this, or does this happen in a lot of places? It happens a few places. Denver, there used to be a guy outside the New York Federal Court. Mm-hmm. There was a, There's some folks um, in New Hampshire who do this. Um, yeah, it's not widespread, um, but yes, there are, there are people who do this. Um, sometimes they do get in trouble for jury tampering, is what they sometimes called it. Well, um, almost always those cases are tossed out on First Amendment grounds, though. Why are, so people, why are people so passionate about jury nullification? Like, like who wants to see more of it and why, briefly? Because they want to, um, they 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 feel they feel that it's a good way to um, address the problem of mass incarceration for one thing, especially of black and brown people. Maybe they have problems with drug possession cases, um, and for some libertarians, gun possession cases is a concern. It's a way to kind of tell lawmakers that we don't think that these things that you've said are illegal should be illegal. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Tracy Hunt is a producer at Radio Lab in New York. She talked with Nathan Heffel. The Radiolab episode about Laura Creho and jury nullification is called Null and Void. Tracy and her colleagues with legal experts break down more of the ethical implications of jury nullification. It's really interesting, and we have a link at CPR.org. Laura Creho died in January. 
And you can hear more remembrances of notable Coloradans who died this past year at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's one thing to read history. It's another thing to hear it. Take this tale about a bunch of kids climbing a spire in the Colorado National Monument in the early 1900s. This is the late Jeanette LeBeau describing how she and her friends clambered up barefoot with no gear. And there'd be five or six of us, little girls and boys together, and we'd pull each other and shove each other and pull each other and shove each other till we got up there to that little narrow pinnacle top, which is gone. Mm-hmm. And then we climb up there and write our name in the book. And then look, we would look down. But we were scared to look down. So we'd turn around, turn our back, and then start backing down. That is just one of the oral histories in a new online archive from the Mesa County Library. With the click of a mouse, you can learn about the early days of the Grand Valley, the sheep and cattle wars, the last of the Ute Indians, the influence of the Ku Klux Klan. Librarian Noel Kalinian is behind this project, and he's in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Hi, Noel. Hey, good morning. You had a cache of 2,000 interviews recorded around 40 years ago, and I understand many of them were in very poor condition on moldering cassette tapes. What made you decide they were worth the hard work of saving? Well, um, you know, I had worked a little bit in archives before, a little bit in the Denver Public Library and Western History and Genealogy, and I had some experience. And I grew up here in Grand Junction, and um, it really seemed like an invaluable resource, these interviews that the library did with the Museums of Western Colorado starting in 1975. And um, so I approached Aaron, um, who is the archivist at the museum there, and I said, you know, can we digitize these tapes? The library had at one time been um, the place where people went to listen to those tapes, whereas the museum is more the archival repository. And so I kind of wanted to bring that relationship into the 21st century and and make that access available again, but online. Given that there are people alive today who've really never used a cassette tape. Uh, were, yeah. were, were, there, <laughs> were there topics on these tapes that took you by surprise? Yeah, there were, um, you know, and and I'm I'm familiar with the area's history, so maybe instead of surprise, I would say things that impressed me. Um, uh, I would say, you know, on the um, kind of strange side, or or uh, is Colorado Avenue, which is one of Grand Junction's main thoroughfares. I didn't realize it had been a hotbed of prostitution for many years and oh. and other vices. Um, as far as being impressed, you know, just the sheer amount of work that homemakers did and. Um, you know, canning everything that, that was grown on the farm or, um, you know, drying foods and storing foods and making butter. Um, I was just reading one story of a woman who um, churned her butter by putting it on her horse as she came down from Colburn to get the mail in Plateau Valley. And then by the time <laughs> she got back, the road was so rough that the, the butter was churned. I see. It was the movement of the horse that would churn. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so there are, are perhaps some lighter moments on these tapes, some heavier ones as well, because a number of them deal with discrimination against sheep farmers, mm-hmm. against African-Americans, Native Americans, and interestingly, against Basque immigrants. Uh, we're going to hear the voice of Basque pioneer Jean Uridi 
explaining what life was like for Basques in western Colorado in the 1930s and 40s. We was very much discriminated. We could not go to no restaurants in Grand Junction. Not all they refused us to get in. So we, uh, we never followed much uh, the American way of society, you know. We knew we wasn't welcome, so we didn't, we stayed away, you know. No access to restaurants, he says, to dance halls. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because they were discriminated against, supposedly for being different. And yet being discriminated against meant they couldn't assimilate. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you were a, a Basque immigrant in that area, in that era, by law, the only job you could have was herding sheep. Is that right? Well, and I haven't done the background check on this. so I, I don't know that it's uh, factual, but he does mention in his interview that by law, Basques, I think for at least four years, I believe, had to herd sheep before they could go on to something else. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he, he did. And he, as he mentioned, pretty much stayed away from town, stayed up in um, Pinion Mesa, which is an area near here, a little higher up where a lot of cattle ranchers and sheep ranchers were based. And after a time, he and his Basque friends pooled enough money to buy their own sheep ranching outfit. And then from there, he became a hotel owner on Colorado Avenue who actually um, went about cleaning up Colorado Avenue. But yeah, you know, I think it probably goes to being Catholic at that time, um, shortly after the Klan's rise and fall. I think it probably goes to being Southern European. Um, The only person they could find to fund their business ventures was an Italian banker in eastern Utah, I believe. Um, And so they went back to him over many years, I think, to to help them with uh, funding for their business ventures. A colorful character who is talked about in these oral histories is John Otto, the founder and first superintendent of the Colorado National Monument. And you preserved a segment about John Otto and a mysterious box he had. Yeah. Uh, first off, tell us why he had a, a reputation, I guess, as a, as a madman, as a trickster, before we hear this next clip. Sure. Um, so John Otto, he is the person who really is responsible for creating the Colorado National Monument, for breaking many of the trails there. But he was also an eccentric guy, and, and he would send these strange letters to the editor in that were half poetry, half patriotic tribute, half early environmental movement stuff. Hmm. And he had been institutionalized a couple times in California, I believe. But it's believed that was related to his union activity at a time when the governor was facing a heated re-election campaign. And he was later let out. And in fact, um, he was cleared of insanity um, charges here. Well, this is an old timer, Craig Opperly, who knew John Otto, describing a pretty scary prank he pulled. The Chamber of Commerce there's, was having an annual banquet down at Fruta. And old John, John came in uh, with a big package in his arms with a lighted fuse on it. And they opened it up and there's a box of apples. <laughs> That's great. They brought old John up and put him in jail. Well, then tried him for his sanity. They cleared him. <sighs> So this was a box that looked like a bomb, but contained (laughs) apples. Uh, And you can hear that, you know, the audio quality on these tapes is of of various varying quality. Uh, One of them is is very clear. It's the voice of Rex Howell, a broadcast pioneer who moved from Denver to the Western Slope in 1930 to start the first local radio station. At the time, uh, Grand Junction was pretty cut off from the broadcast world, really bad reception. 
uh, Howell also started the area's first TV station. Uh, they had no daytime reception to speak of and, uh, and no summertime reception. Uh, it was limited pretty much to uh, the uh, reception of long-distance stations uh, on winter nights. Uh, many of the people took their antennas down during the summer months, thinking they were a lightning hazard perhaps, because there was little use for them uh, during the, that time of the year. And it occurred to me that here was an area that badly needed service, and I had established my station near Denver. It looked like a, uh, a good move, and uh, we've never regretted it when we moved to Grand Junction in the fall of 1930. And here we are, speaking across the continental divide and broadcasting in yep. many places, <laughs> including Grand Junction. You know, before we go, uh, how painstaking was it to restore these tapes? We have a, a little less than a minute. Sure. Um, you know, and it's it's an ongoing process because there are so many. Um, so I'll be doing this for a few years. It's oh. good job security. But um, <laughs> it, it is, uh, yeah, I mean, there's tapes that break. Um, that you have to repair them. Sometimes you have to repair them twice or three times before you get the recording. Um, it's all about trying to get the recording done without damaging the tape. Um, and, um, you know, it can take a little while sometimes, especially... Uh, to get them online and described so people can can find them by keywords and and things like that. That is Mesa County Librarian Noel Kalinian, who helped preserve these words as part of an ongoing oral history project. He joined us from the CPR studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. When I think of flying during the holidays, a few things come to mind. Slogging through security, grabbing fast food and waiting. Ken Seifert has a different idea, exercising. Now, he sometimes takes that to extremes with a routine that will get him through a long layover. But he also has a way of burning calories in the TSA line. Seifert has written The Complete Guide to Airport Exercise. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. You travel a lot as a diplomat, and the idea of exercising at the airport, I suppose, is one thing. But I'm especially wondering how you figure people can do that around the holidays when airports are so busy and crowded, the running part especially. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of people that travel right now and people are stressed out. But honestly, the best way to think about this is that an airport can be a big gym. And so there's all kinds of corridors and quiet corners that you can find even during the busy holiday season to carve out space to do cords or you can do some jumping jacks and yes, even running. I run in airports all the time, even during the holidays. And it's just about navigating the crowds and looking out for other people. Becomes an obstacle course, I suppose. You said cords there. Yeah, the resistant cords are, I think, one of the best you know, gym equipment items that I've ever purchased that have ever been invented. They don't always replace a good workout in the gym, but you can take them anywhere. They're compact. You can take them in a small bag or purse, and you can use them in, in very small spaces just about anywhere, um, even at the airport line waiting to get your ticket. And so you might do what? Bicep, tricep exercises with those? Absolutely. In fact, you can work out almost every muscle group with the cords. I do biceps, triceps, back, um, definitely shoulders. You know, you can even get creative and use them for legs. But then there are other kinds of workouts you can do that don't involve the cords. You, in fact, do that near your gate uh, using those pretty uncomfortable seats that are often in airports. 
The seats are another piece that one can use in their exercise routine. So you can do seated tricep dips. You lean on the seat and you basically lift yourself up and down, up and down as you work your triceps. I can you know, sit in the seat literally and bring my knees up to my chest in slow controlled motions. And that sort of works my abs and is also cardio. Yeah, your core, so, right. Exactly. So it's not always about bringing specific equipment to use. And in fact, one of the best pieces of equipment to use for airport exercise is your bag. The bags that you bring with you can serve as weights. You know, you can use them in your routine. It just adds more calorie burning and you can get pretty creative. Okay, Ken, the elephant in the room here is how strange you must look <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to, other, to other passengers. Have you had to get over the gawking? You know what? I have a chapter in the book called this, The Stairs, The Shame. You know, sweating in an airport, running, it does attract attention. It's a little bit unusual on one hand, but then when you think about it, you see running all the time in airports, as an example. People late for their gates trying to, you know, get that last Dunkin' Donut before they get on their flight. So running's actually not that unusual. But certainly people will watch as I'm doing my resistant cords and I'm, you know, sweating and, and trying to get my workout in. Basically, for me, it's just about feeling confident in what I'm doing, knowing that it's for health purposes, and feeling good about the fact that I'm utilizing my time efficiently instead of, you know, just sitting there and wasting it. Yeah, it strikes me, of course, that airports can be rather unhealthy places. I mean, you're surrounded by Cinnabon and Sbarrow. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of sitting around. How, how did you come to this idea of exercising in airports? I do travel a, a lot, um, but I also have a huge sweet tooth. So I love to eat those Cinnabons and those donuts. And so I figure, you know, in order to accommodate all the eating I like, I need to exercise and travel should not stop me or inhibit that. So I started exercising early on in my late teens, and I've just developed a program over the years where I just uh, basically make the best use of the time. And so you have complete workouts that you've built. Are, do airports have gyms? Yeah, I mean, a number of airports do have gyms. I mean, all over the world, you find s certain gyms. That's a good option for some people. It does cost, and sometimes they tend to be a little crowded. But if one doesn't want to go through the formal process of paying to use the gym, there's so much you can do in the airport that doesn't require official equipment or gym uh, you know, dues or anything. Do you stink up the plane? I can't imagine wanting to <laughs> sit, sit next to you after this. I love that question. And in fact, I tend to get more compliments about my smell than I think most people. And the basic approach is that you do have to be hygienic. I mean, as a diplomat, I, I, I can't show up smelling um, in my suit when I arrive to a meeting. Uh, so what I do is I bring a hygiene kit with me, basic soap and towel and some toiletries. And then I find restrooms where I can wash up very effectively. Usually a sink um, with those supplies will work. But you can use the family restrooms. They're bigger. They have more privacy. And you can do as much or as little as you want. And I find it's pretty effective. So you, you bring a pair of clothes with you. Sometimes you'll wear your exercise gear underneath your traveling clothes. That's usually how I travel because then you can just take off the suit or the jeans and you can, you know, get into your exercise routine very quickly, then clean up and then get back into your everyday clothes. And so I'm picturing you taking a sponge bath, essentially, in an airport <laughs> restroom. Um, is there any exercise that you do in the security line while standing? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a place where one needs to be a little bit more careful. As in anything, you, you need to understand the rules and the policies and respect the environment. But in the line, you literally stand and raise yourself up on your calves in slow control motions and you're doing calf raises, great leg exercises. Sometimes if you're in line for, you know, 25 minutes, that's 25 minutes of leg exercises. That's also cardio that you're burning calories and building muscle. Otherwise, you know, you could just stand there and feel frustration or you can get a, a mini workout in. Have you ever been stopped by TSA? Never. In almost 20 years of doing this, uh, 100 different airports at least, 50 different countries, I've never been stopped. In fact, TSA agents, um, I found, often take pictures of me and, and send it to their friends. They, they applaud. They, they, they give me a thumbs up. I find that people, even security officials, um, find it a very interesting and exciting idea. But I think people are typically more curious because as long as I'm not bothering anybody, I'm doing something that is very healthy and beneficial. It strikes me that at the very least, you could just walk in the airport. Uh, it's often that I'll yeah. roam down and see where flights are leaving to and coming from. Exactly. And and one should not feel that they have to do the, the crazy three hours that I typically do in airports. Right. One can do the basic stretching and walking and yoga, and that's fantastic. Uh, even you know people in their 80s have sent me videos and pictures of doing basic exercises. So it really can apply to anybody. Three hours. That's intense. Well, happy holidays. Thanks for being with us, Ken. Real pleasure. Happy holidays to you as well. Ken Seifert has written The Complete Guide to Airport Exercise. He's a U.S. diplomat who splits his time between the Dominican Republic and Colorado. You can subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. We're also on NPR One. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.